That's right, welcome back to another season of political football. The doubters said we couldn't make season three. Well, guess what? When you direct and write your own podcast, you can make as many seasons as you want. Welcome back here to, and I suppose it's been a very eventful few months uh, around the world and also locally, but it's also great to have my co-host and fellow dribbler here, uh, Joe Boyden, uh, joining us here. How are you, mate? How you been? Yeah, it's good to be back, um, and it's it's that time of year again, you know? Not the uh, not the time the, the teddy bears have their picnic, but it's the, <laughs> it's the, the time for footy, it's the time for um, spitting some dribble yeah, yeah. and having a bit of fun. Yeah, well, as always, that's what we're here for. And again, mixing your uh, your policy and your and your sport mixed together to create a nice infused uh, podcast for you guys. So again, send through your questions, and uh, we've got hundreds of them that we get through on a weekly basis. So we'll get to them shortly. And shout out to all the long time listeners of the podcast. But in terms of what the agenda is here today for the policy side, we're going to touch a bit on the uh, the flood situation in the Northern Rivers area in southeast Queensland and what was going on there and. Um, perhaps from a policy perspective, what can be done or what could be done better um, into going forward, especially, I suppose, as these things happen more often. Uh, and then also a bit of stuff on uh, the economics and, and cost of living, which is obviously my wheelhouse, or so I like to say. Um, and then on the, on the sports side, what do we have coming up on that side, Joe? Uh, mate, we're going to be talking a bit of Warney. Um, we're going to be kind of recapping the Ashes and Australia's successful summer of cricket. That's actually still continuing now over in Pakistan. Yeah. Um, talk a bit of Ash Barty uh, and her success over last year and the start of this year. And, um, of course, uh, we'll be unpacking a bit of a rugby league. A bit of rugby league, yes. It's good to be back. And uh, yeah, we're both wearing our traditional uh, jerseys uh, while we record this. So uh, we've gotten into character very well. And I'm assuming that will lead to uh, some extraordinary rugby league chat uh, but to start off with, uh, so as we said, mentioned about the flood. So first of all, I just have to set all my, my thoughts and considerations up to the people of uh, the Northern Rivers area, Lismore especially, but also Ballina, Mwilumba, uh, Kogel, um, and other parts up there, but even in Byron as well, but also southeast Queensland. Obviously, Brisbane was flooded as well, so lots of homes affected there. Um, and you know the cost of floods is significant. Uh, you know, all the, a lot of these homes are going to have to be rebuilt um, or you know, you know, uh, refurbished to a significant level. So this process is only just beginning for them. They're in the, the initial stage, the acute phase of the, of the cleanup. So setting the considerations there, and I suppose it's important. I suppose in the new twenty four hour news cycle, especially since the last couple of years, we go from bushfires to pandemics to floods and everything in between. That we don't forget about the legacy of that. I know people in the bushfires. You know, a lot of them would still be rebuilding their homes or going through that process of sorting out and, you know, obviously coming to large personal and financial cost to that as well. So it's important that we, we take take stock of that going forward. But uh, I suppose what we'll look at is the initial response so far um, in the in the, in the the flood hit areas. Um, and starting with the, on, the, on the Monday, I just saw nearly a fortnight ago now, um, the, I suppose the key thing was that you know, with natural disasters, a lot of them are, un- you know, what makes them disasters, they're unexpected or you get overwhelmed, right? Um, but the the information was from the Bureau was that the, the, I think the river would rise to 11 and a half metres, which is what it's done before, would obviously cause a lot of damage when you flood, but it actually ended up reaching, I think, 14, 14.5 metres. So that's an extra three metres. So that's an extra, you know, effectively a story and a half. An extra basketball hoop. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so... Um, that was unexpected, and, and, and a lot of these areas are remote. You got one road in, one road, one road out, and a lot of them were cut off. So um, it went down to you know the emergency services that were available at the time, um, and also local community members. And you've heard some incredible stories about you know um, people finding people you know who, when they're floating on mattresses. You know, I heard a story about it um, two police uh, rescue operatives coming across an elderly woman uh, who was lying on a mattress and there was 20, centi- 20 centimetres between where the floodwaters were and the ceiling. So you're talking about a matter of you know seconds or minutes here between life or death. And unfortunately, there's been about 13 people in the New South Wales that have passed away. And I think there's been a few in Queensland as well. So even nearing the sort of levels that we saw with the bushfires. And you remember that devastation, how big that was and how big of a land mass that was as well. But you know, you talk about whole communities here as well. And Lismore... I think there's about three, you know there's estimates between three to five thousand people who are now homeless uh, they've got nowhere to stay and and i think a lot of the anger came from that initial piece sure the flood hit and the, you know you know there's only so much you can do when it's, when it's unexpected like that but 
in terms of the response, you know, they were out of, there was no communications for, a, you know, close to a week from what I've read. Um, there, was no, there was lack of supplies on the ground. So you had all this sort of, you had the initial disaster, but then you also had the slow response initially, right? And again, uh, and, uh, not everything's perfect and, you know, the, you know, disasters are disasters because, you know, the resources can't get there. But this makes you think about, you know, we spend a lot of money on disaster recovery and mitigation, when I actually look at the share, I think I heard this on ABC last week, that only 3% goes towards mitigation efforts. So it looks like about preparing and reducing the impact of, of floods or bushfires or whatever the disaster is. Um, and, you know, everything else goes towards recovery effort, right? So you look at the recovery effort and you get these things more and more regularly, just increasing, increasing your cost, right? These, they, they, they cost, I think they had floods in 2016, I think the year was. And obviously, Brisbane was hard hit in 2011. Um, Northwest Sydney, you know, Hawkesbury area, Richmond area, they um, got hit just with floods last year as well. So these things are becoming more and more regular. So um, do you, do you, what, what are your thoughts initially on, on the floods? I just think, you know, they, 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 there's no perfect solution to it. But uh, for me, definitely an area where it could be approached better, especially the recovery occurs, is we look to increase funding for mitigation uh, as a total share of the funding rather than just a recovery. So we're actually better better served to meet these challenges rather than just dealing with them and then recovering and then another happens again, we're back at square zero, you know? So I'm not sure, what are your what initial thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I agree for sure. Um, in terms of something like these mitigations, like, you know, it's kind of like a no-brainer. Um, I mean, you spend money on recovery at the end and, like, it's like an endless pit, you know what I mean? It's kind of never going to stop, but, like, you're just saving your own back um, ahead of time by mitigation. But also, I guess, like, I guess this is the sort of, like, test, another sort of test like the fires were. Um, And especially over the last, like, five years, I think people in Australia, especially, like, I mean, New South Wales, for example, just because that's close to us, um, you know, we've experienced these kind of catastrophes one by one over the past few years. So I guess it should be more of, you know, more of some of a reality and like a, an immediate threat that people know can happen, you know, year after year or <clears throat> every two years or, or something. So, you know, I mean, I was talking to someone the other day and laughing how like, you know, we've seen we have like five or five to ten, you know, kind of smooth years of oh, nothing can touch us. Like we're all good. Like life's good. And then last three or four years has been real shaky. Yeah. I think it's a bit of a wake up call. It's like kind of like a test to our generations as well. Um, you know, life's not life's pretty fragile. Yeah. We can't uh, be complacent. Yeah, you can't be complacent, but it's also kind of it's not it's it's kind of lazy to not be prepared for things like this yeah. when we know it can happen and when we've got some of the best professionals in the world who have spent a long time like devoting their life to these issues and if we're not focusing on them before they happen um we're just gonna keep you know yeah. going backwards trying yeah. to clean up the mess after it all happens so clean up's a very important part and a lot of people do a lot of good work but you we ultimately don't want them doing the work yeah as, as much as they're doing because you know that's t- taxing on everyone's lives and everyone's everyone's safety. So yeah, mitigation. Yeah. And I suppose this goes to the argument. You know, across all sort of government areas as well. You know, against pre- prevention versus treatment. You know, like you, you know, it might cost you know more initially to do like preventative measures, but in the long term, you know, if you it's intervene, an investment. yeah, it's if you an inter- investment yeah. in the future, like the, yeah. the aim of the like the aim of it is to not lose more in the end. Yeah, yeah. you got to spend to make, mate. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Not yeah, anonymous, yeah. but let me tell you. Sell something. low, buy, 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 sorry, buy low, sell high, I should say. Yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting space. And, like, there has been some sp- spending on the issue. I think I saw, did a bit of research in the, you know, the in South Lismore, the airport there. They did some, like, I think 2019, they did, like, a flood diversion channel. So to, like, inc- increase the ability for the divert floods going away from the centre of the town. But that was, again, the, the modelling only showed that would divert, a, you know, uh, diverge 100 millimetres of, of, the, of the water level away from the town, right? And when you're dealing with 400 and a half metres, you know, what, what, what does that mitigation look like? Is it, is it feasible to do this mitigation or is it just the fact that because it's in a low-lying area and there's a, the river meets the creek and that creates sort of like a funnel for flooding... Is that feasible? But then you're talking about communities. You like communities that have been built on, you know, h- hundreds of years or you know tens of years, 
um, and you're telling people to up, uproot, move their lifestyles, and this is all they've ever known. So, again, it's a bit of a, a, a wicked issue, and you're dealing not with an exact science. You know, what's to say? You know, again, these things don't be happen more regularly, especially. I think the impact of climate change is starting to be acknowledged that we're actually living with it. Mm. You know, like the impacts of it, and what we do going forward that will hopefully reduce the impact going like longer term. So, um, obviously, that, that we're starting to live with that. I think Australia is probably one of the most. Uh, one of the first countries that will start to feel the grunt of this, given given our our climate itself and um, that sort of thing. So there needs to be a serious discussion about that um, and some serious policy mechanisms to put in place. But what has given me hope is that the the, the spirit of the Australian people is strong. This is where we're at. people say we're at our best. You know, they say Australia is best in a crisis, but uh, horrible in good times. Yeah. You know, so. Um, we always say the best of people here, you know, the, the flood, the, the donations coming through, the, you know, the extraordinary stories of community support for more people from walks of life. So um, that's great to see. And, you know, um, hopefully, um, you know, we, we're positive. We don't, again, we don't, the key thing is we don't move on and forget about this. But we don't create an emergency relief fund that's supposed to help these people. And then here we are two years on from the bushfires, only $50 million has been spent. And it's, you know, just accruing interest as a term deposit in the words of Bridget McKenzie, um, the national senator, who was obviously, um, it was quite ironically said this would be unlawful for her to spend all of the money when she was at the, uh, the heart of the sports draw scandal. So go figure for that one, mate. But um, yeah, moving on now um, to a bit more of in the wheelhouse of myself. Uh, and that's, I feel like it's an, an issue that needs to be addressed this year, especially as we move towards a federal election. It's always the number one item on a federal election or number one or two, and that's the cost of living. Um, and so what we look at here is sort of the wages aspect against inflation. I feel like there's been a lot of commentary around, um, you know, especially from the financial market type saying there's going to be an interest rate rise in June this year. They're bringing, back, bringing forward their estimates because, you know, inflation's risen by 3.5%. Still nowhere near, you know, the levels we're seeing in the US or other parts of the world. But, um, you know, there, you know, it is there and, and wages aren't, aren't keeping up with it. Wages growth in the last um, reporting period was 2.3%. Wages growth, so effectively what that means is that um, your purchasing powers decrease for the average worker. So for someone earning $68,000, which isn't probably too far from myself actually, um, is it was effectively a real wage cut of 832. Now for someone like myself, I've obviously improved over the last year and that, that, that sort of doesn't particularly apply to, apply to me, but for the average person um, who's been a, who's working, that, that makes a real difference. Um, and that gap of 1.2%, it means your dollar doesn't go as far. So, you, you know, you, you're saving, whatever you're saving up for, it's taking more, you, you can't do what it, you know, as much as you previously could. I know, Petrol prices, I'm not sure about your experience there, but obviously they've increased and they talk about the Russia-Ukraine uh, war, war um, having an impact there at the Bowser. Uh, but one thing I've noticed myself more personally is, that, is groceries. I consider myself a bit of a specialist in doing a $50 shop. You know, like just like it's like the same items, just like the filling between like the big items like meat and, and uh, toiletries and all that sort of stuff. But um, now I got you. I went for a fifty dollars shop last year, or be like a lot, you know, a couple of, last couple of years, we around fifty dollars. Now it's about sixty four dollars for that for that effectively that same basket yeah. of goods. Um, so this is making impact, and it just goes to I think a broader aspect of real wages. They have not grown for six consecutive quarters, which is the longest run since the Bureau of Statistics, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, started collating the wage price index. And since the 2019 elections, real wages have fallen by 0.8%, which is the first time they have fallen during a parliamentary term. Uh, this since the turn of the century, so since 2000, and um, probably a bit further than back then, that scene that we had 28 years of uh, economic growth off the back of Hawke and Keating. But um, yeah, this is a real thing. I'm not sure when you have you noticed this when you when you go shopping or you, you go. Is this something you tangibly notice? You know, the increased cost. I'm not sure if your rent's gone up. That's another area for housing costs. But, um, yeah, this is something that's been noticed. Like, where, where do you see this hitting hitting yourself? Well, yeah, I suppose. I, I notice with um, fuel, for sure. I mean, how, like, you can't really yeah. avoid it right now. Everyone's talking about it. But I suppose shopping as well, um, you know, as you, as you said, like, it, it seems to just constantly creep up on you, like, things you've always always been buying at a certain uh, price, Um seem to be going up but i'm just interested you said with the did you say the last six quarters yeah it hasn't what hasn't grown real real wages so real wages yeah. yeah so but do you think like just 
I want to know more about it from, from you. Yes. Yeah. As this isn't my uh, wheelhouse, as yeah. I've noticed, it's this is your wheelhouse. Um, <laughs> Few wheelhouses, <laughs> I've noticed you've been liking that word today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but this isn't. This is a pretty like peculiar. It's been a pretty peculiar last six quarters. Yeah. yeah. Like, is this obviously like could this just be flow and effect from the pandemic? So are we still are we still dealing with issues coming from the pandemic here or is this something that would have happened regardless of the pandemic or not well my argument obviously was that, the ukraine russia war thing has nothing to do with the pandemic and that's its own kind of yeah. animal but in terms of the flow and effects of the pandemic and the correlation with no like wages rising surely yeah. that has to have something to do with it well it's funny that you mentioned that because the pandemic's actually tightened up the labor market um because there's, there's actually more people unemployed now than there was prior to the start of the pandemic. Right. So, the, and the unemployment rate's down to, I think, 4.2% was its latest um, uh, marker last month for, for February. And there's talk that they might get down into the, low, into the three. So the, the cyclical argument in relation to unemployment is effectively the lower unemployment goes, that means there's less workers. So that means employers, if they want to bring someone in, they they have to pay more to bring them in, right? Because there's less less workers. So... Their, their willingness to pay is greater because they need that extra ability to employ someone, right? Yeah. So, in, in fact, the tightening labour market should lend itself to increasing wages, right? And if I had a dollar for every time over the last 12, 18 months since the labour market started to improve and tighten after the initial um, national lockdown, you know, in, in June 2020, um, I'd be have about $500. <laughs> 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 uh, but, um, People take notes. Yeah, it's, I think the key thing is, that, and I'm liking the rhetoric I'm hearing from the RBA and Dr. Lowe, Dr. Philip Lowe, who's the RBA governor, um, saying that he wants to see you know, growth, wages growth for a sustained period. You know, he wants to see with a three in front of it. Uh, and we haven't been able to sneeze and get a three in front of wages growth. So it was 2.3%. Uh, I think it was about 2.1% in the public sector, 2.4% uh, in the private sector. So that meets in the middle there. Um, but yeah, no, that, that, that shouldn't have an impact of it. But what I'm saying is we've had seven or eight years of really like stagnant wages growth. It was an, it was an issue before the pandemic mm. and it's still an issue now. And it should be less of an issue, right? If you go with the argument in relation to, you know, unemployment dropping, mm. wages should go up because people, there's a scarce resources of skills, right? Um, people say it's the, 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 like the, the, having the border shut and unable to bring in, you know, migrants who would feel, you know, feel that role. But the evidence from that, there was evidence from Grant Institute that hasn't really played its role, but it goes to a more structural argument. I think there's been a decline in the amount of full-time work being performed, mm-hmm. and usually full-time work means more secure work, you get leave and entitlements, and there's been an increase in casualisation. There's a record number of people with two jobs, and that feeds into the argument you know, that it could be structural, people with people's ability to bargain you know, to, for wages and, and, and collect, as a collective like that. So there's these structural elements too, um, and I think I think they play a role. And again, again, this is that's not an exact science, but just on the evidence that I that I think I observe, I would lean more to it being structural as opposed to the cyclical. Um, so yeah, there's things that can be done. Like the the New South Wales government introduced a two point five percent wage cap, so the public servants couldn't get any more than two point five percent. What which is I can see, you know, you don't you don't want to see like you know public sector wages going up while everyone else is struggling, right? I understand that, but it also has the impact that the public sector and the private sector compete for talent. So if wages are going up in the public sector and they're attracting better talent, all of a sudden it puts the emphasis on the private sector to meet that. And make, so then that will push wages up as well, right? And we're talking about a time as of inflation. You know, it's not skyrocketing here yet, but it's still above. So you will want real wages going back and that's where it hits in the hip pocket. You know, you know in, in specific areas as well, you know, house prices over the last, you know, 29.6% in Sydney, you know, 17.9% in Melbourne, uh, and nationally, uh, 22%. So you have these areas where, you know, and regional rents have gone up as well, because a lot of people moved uh, for, you know, tree change during the pandemic um, to regional areas, because obviously the ability to work from home had an impact on that. So again, CPI doesn't actually measure the impacts of like of buying an established home which which most homes are right you buy an established home because there's nothing being produced mm. so you have these impacts so for first home buyers the actually angela jackson who works for uh, impact economics did a report and actually found that inflation was 6.1 percent which is no surprise right you, you look at the size of mortgages the size of an average mortgage has gone up about 200k in the last year 
to get more money, you know, as a total share of your income going towards that. Mm. And the other thing, obviously something you can't spend on another thing, right? You know, in terms of consumption. So you have these impacts and um, I feel like we get this rhetoric from the government, the economy has been moving along and certainly in some pockets it is. Professional services has been really strong. You know, white collar jobs have held up pretty well. But in other areas, I mean, aged care workers is the one that stands out for me. The Royal Commission, I think, recommended a 25% um, wage increase for them. Obviously, that would attract people into it if they could pay more. Uh, and this is extremely taxing work, right? Um, you know, looking after someone else is one of the greatest vocations you can do, you know? And you do that you know, as, a, as a, a budding teacher, um, you know, you have an aspect of that as well. I mean, your job's more important than mine. That's the way I look at it. Um, it's, same with aged care. We're talking about looking after our more vulnerable childcare workers and other. These are huge areas of employment. And if we saw wage growth there, we value these people more. It would make a significant difference, not only to themselves, but it would make a difference to the economy. Because all of a sudden, these people have more money to spend. They've got more money in their back pocket, and they're not seeing their real wages get cut. So I think there are some structural arguments there too as well. And I don't think my, I think most people on the street would agree that they wouldn't mind putting an extra bill for people to look after their elderly and the sick and the vulnerable an extra dollar or two. So that that whatever whatever government comes in next. It's a serious challenge for them and it needs to be addressed because I feel like the Scott Morrison talks about the promise of Australia. It's a very empty, vacuous way, way he talks about it. But for me, there's an unspoken rule that we try and pass on a better deal to the next generation. And I feel like for the first time that could be under threat given the current set of, set of circumstances, whether it's be the economic relationship, the social relationship or even trust in democratic institutions. Now, I know I've gone on a bit of a tangent there. But I feel oh, like mate. I've had this discussion with a few people. and I'm This quite, is what the people have been waiting for. I'm quite passionate about it. So when these inflation hawks are working financial markets, I was speaking to one of Harry Tate's mates. I, I, I won't mention his name for, for his own personal uh, safety. Privacy reason. But, yeah, but he, I, I was at uh, the uh, Hottest 100 day. We were at uh, Camperdown Park and he was saying, oh, I'm pricing in and, uh, you know, two, two uh, rate rises this year. And I said, mate, you work in the, your financial market. That's fine, right? You have an understanding of that. That's good. Mate, you got to deal with the real economy, right? You, you don't understand like, what you are. If you do that, what you're passing on to the average person. And sure, there's been a record number of, I think, there's an increase in the amount of people who are ahead of their mortgage. So, you know, I think, you know, like, that terms of, like, they've got money in their offset account. So they're about a year ahead of their repayments, all that. But there's still a large proportion of people that would be committing a lot of their, you know, month-to-month wages towards their mortgage or to rent payments, as I said, which have increased significantly in regional areas because of there's a you know, housing vacancy issue. Like the Northern Rivers, for example, they had a housing vacancy rate before the floods of 0.6%. So if you wanted to move up there, you know, it would be, you'd hard to, it was hard to find a place to live mm. but before the floods. Now you've got all the people who live up there without a home, you know. Yeah. So these are big structural issues that need to be taken care of. And I just feel like the um, the political debate around it can be a bit uh, short of the mark sometimes uh, in this regard. As I said, these people, you know, who can sit up there in their ivory towers who own a home and all these things, you know, talk about, you know, the financial markets. A couple bubble wrap wrap warriors. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think they uh, understand that. But, yes, I'm quite passionate about that. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Would wage rises, like, inevitably lead to more inflation? Well, that's that's the general yeah. theory, though, isn't it? Well, yeah, the wages rise. People got more money to spend, so they've got willingness to their willingness to pay for things goes up, which yeah. means you know they there, there will the be price. some inflation. But inflation's already going above wages. But would would an emphasis on wage rises like speed that process of inflation up? Oh, it, it could. You know, that could be the part part of the relationship, and they're going to reading into it. But the, it, it needs to be it needs to be structural. You know, structural elements as well, but. Um, we're already at that point where inflation is above wages anyway. Mm. So for me, that the trade-off is uh, it's worthwhile. And again, we're not talking about, you know, I'm not, I'm not asking for like wages to go from like, you know, you know 2% or whatever they are, you know, 2.3% at the moment to 10%. I wouldn't mind. Yeah, well, I mean, everyone, everyone <laughs> right. And, and some, some areas are getting, like lawyers, you know, they, they, yeah. they've got 10% pay rises because they're getting recruited from London. So there's really good, like the, I said, white-collar jobs and professional service jobs, they're seeing these wage rises. But... Across the economy, it's not aggregating out. You know, mm. and there's been bonuses being paid. There's a, you know sign-on bonuses, but it's not the increase. The same increase is getting an increase in your base pay, mm. which goes up you know every year. So um, yeah, there's certainly some pockets. I think it's been like the pandemic, right? Some people have gone really well, and some people have really struggled, right? It's always the way, but it's been especially a divergence. So, but across the economy, when it's aggregated, we're still not seeing the wage growth, etc. But 
a key part of the solving that would be valuing our teachers more or valuing our aged care workers more. These are huge areas of employment, health, you know, healthcare as well, just more broadly, you know, we saw them, we've seen the teachers go on strike, we've seen the nurses go on strike, we've seen rail workers get locked out of uh, Sydney, Sydney trains, um, and again, it was a lockout, it wasn't a strike for Andy Morris and Nick McNamara, if you're listening, and I've been validated by that. It's always good to be on the right side of history, Joe, um, and that's with most things, but uh, we'll leave it there, we'll move on to a bit of sport now, uh, and we'll be back shortly after this advertisement. Are you a recently impacted home by the floods? Well, guess what? Scotty's Cleaning Service is here to do you the good that the country needs. Why have we got the mops that's going to clean the floors that have already been cleaned? Why are we going to come in and we're going to do it? Because how good are mops and how good's Australia? Scotty's Cleaning Services, 133032. What about the lady you met at home? What's, what happened? Oh, yeah. Um, when we were, started to have to stay, spend at home, I, I noticed this woman sitting in my lounge room. Yeah. Yeah, um, because I was in and out with Fox Cricket. And then with COVID, I started to talk to her. And, and, and she told me she was my wife. <laughs> and, we're, and we're getting on really well. Well, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, that was a fine... Uh, Kerry O'Keefe's uh, skull, as they call him, uh, in the local area around uh, the St George area of uh, southern Sydney, uh, cracking a joke in front of the late, great uh, Shane Keith Warren. It almost to me is a bit surreal to say the late, great, but, uh, you know, they, he had a feel of that little segment cleans it up very well. That's him laughing in the background. Um, large, you know, I feel like the term larger than life has been thrown around in the last week, and uh, that's certainly what he was. I often joke that he was uh, one of these people that you couldn't believe that they found 24 hours in a day. You know, like it was like he was operating at double the capacity everywhere, everywhere else. It was like a, the first Yes Man, Jim Carrey's Yes Man, was built based on Shane Warne's life. You know, he never said no to anything. Uh, there was this great sort of, even if you didn't, obviously I never met him personally, I presume the same for you, but you felt like you knew him because he was so open and gave everything. You know, he was flawed, you know, he was flawed and he did a whole bunch of stuff and that, you know, that, well, that's part of the thing. I compare him being the sporting version of Bob Hawke in terms of his universality and his appreciation and how much the, the, the sporting public and the broader Australian public loved him and he became like, you know, you've traversed the sporting world when you operate the level that he did. Mm. Um, so um, he, he jammed a lot into 52 years. Um, so yeah, obviously, you know, shocking for, for his children, Jackson, Summer, um, and the other one escapes me at the moment, forgive me for that, but... Um, you know, uh, from everyone around the world, you know, it's obviously been a, a big uh, impact. But I think, yeah, as I said, I'll get to you in a second. I'm sure you've got your own little uh, piece you'd like to say about Warney. But um, I think from my observation, he treated everyone the same, which is a great trait tra- 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 to have, right? It's, it's such an easy thing to do to treat someone who was to be above, above you also, you know, someone who's just a general member of the public differently to how you treat someone who's famous or noteworthy in whatever field they're in. But he always in a spare time. I remember a cousin... My, my cousin Paul told me a story about um, when he was young and he was saw him, uh, the Australian cricket team at Adelaide Airport and a lot of them put their head down, but he smiled at Warnie, gave Warnie a wave and Warnie waved back at him, you know? And that little moment for him as a little six-year-old, he went on to play first 11 cricket for the mighty St. Patrick's College uh, first 11 cricket team. Um, I'm sure they played a big role, you know, his love and appreciation of the sport. Uh, but even his commitment to his craft as a, as a leg spinner, you know, uh, you know, people say he's naturally talented, and sure, he might have had hands like talons. I'm sure his his fingers were just like like bloody boulders, and he had a, he had a big, great wrist position. And I've never one thing I've never done is spun a ball or swung a ball in my life. <laughs> uh, I'm just the old muddler, right arm kettle. You could boil a kettle by the time the ball gets down the other end. Um, but Warney was just it was showtime. It was it was theatre. You know, he stand at the top of his mark. He take an extra half a second to come in and bowl the ball. You know, he he smashed you. He smashed you for six. Yeah, he he gets smashed with six. You know, he got hit for a lot of sixes, but he go he go oh, like he nearly got you. Yeah. You know, and that psychology, the the, the people that the mental disintegration they talked about that that era. You know, and, and and it was it was box office taking seven hundred wickets at the MCG, his home ground, taking an, an Ashes hat trick in nineteen ninety four, the ballers, the Gatting ball in uh, nineteen ninety three, you know, World Cup semi final, it, it uh, wins match performing, you know, match winning performances. Um, you know, a couple of those balls against the Africans in the 1999 famous World Cup semi-final were just unbelievable. The drift and then the turn, like it was not like, like it defied physics the way you bowled the ball. But um, yeah, incredible stuff. But I'll, I'll pass on to you now if you, you want to say your uh, 
two cents about Warney. I mean, yeah, I don't think, based on, you know, it's been the biggest probably thing in Australia other than the floods right now. Yeah. So I, I don't think I can really say anything that hasn't been said yeah. already or anything too too different from, from what's been going around the media and, and I guess everyone's own personal shared experiences. But I guess it's just the, you know, losing like a staple of like the Australian like yeah. home sort of yeah. thing. Like he's he's like an icon of summer. Um, Mount Rushmore. So yeah, so. honestly, like it's it's shocking, like um, deeply upsetting, but also, you know, it's it's a good chance to remember all the great things he did. Yeah. And, and as unfortunate as it is, something like this is... It's kind of a good opportunity for everyone to realise how good we have it sometimes. And, um, yeah, I think next next summer will be exciting in Australia. I think it'll be, you know, good to see the boys get up for Warnie and, and obviously, um, you know, make make his make his family proud and, and do what they can to, to help his family and, and help all the cricket fans around the world. But, but yeah, I mean, we've seen it before. It's not, it's not the newest thing in the world, but it just shocks you every time. Yeah. Like, I still can't believe it, but... Um, you know, it's he'll never be forgotten. Lucky, I mean, we're lucky we got that documentary just a couple yeah, months yeah, before that. Sure. Like those sorts of things will will stay legendary forever. So, yeah, uh, good, good, well, very well said. And one of my favourite stories uh, that I heard was from Michael Clark, um, who's a proud West boy, Western Suburbs uh, Cricket Club, one of the great uh, cricket clubs uh, of the, of the Australian uh, sporting landscape. Um, it was obviously quite close to close to when he loved his cars. You know, loved that sort of aspect of the of uh you know being a, a superstar cricketer um and they got along very well and when they first met warning invited his place in turak um and he said he, when he he walked to the front gate and the, the front door was open and he you know, yelled out warning warning you're, you're around mate and he and he goes yeah Clarky, come on in come on in so he left left the door open for the first uh first point and then walks in said he couldn't believe the size of the tiles and big marble tiles you know size of the ones you get at westfield um and then he goes He's following his voice. And he goes, "Where is he? He's walking through this house. He's got six, seven bedrooms, and he, you know, covers a couple of mirrors on the roof. And uh, he walks in to see uh, Warney in the solarium, like the sunbed, where you had to do the, the the fake tan, hanging out with one with a cigarette, a dart out of his out of his hand, saying, "Hey, Clarky, how are you, mate?" When he walks in, I mean, um, unbelievable uh, sort of stuff. You know, that's just uh, it makes him the the king uh, and that sort of lifestyle. But that is just hilarious. It, Imagine that image of him with the little, little goggles over his eyes <laughs> and having a dart while he's uh, laying on the sunbed getting getting a tan. So um, I thought that was hilarious. And uh, yeah, if you can YouTube that, look it up. I think it was on the Today Show. Again, I don't watch the Today Show, but it was just a snippet I saw on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, just to make that clear. Um, but yeah, we'll leave it there. Moving on to what well, we'll say on cricket for the for the moment. But uh, Australia is currently touring Pakistan first time in 24 years. So uh, almost as, uh, as old as myself, actually. Yeah, um, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> but um, I think the main story here is uh, Usman Khawaja, um, obviously born in Pakistan. Um, I think he moved here when he was two um, in rural Pundi last week, which is absolutely a road of a deck. You know, hit the ninety-seven, just shy of the hundred. Uh, but last night he was able to uh, turn up, um, hit a big hundred on day one of the second test against Pakistan. Beautiful. He just he's easy on the eyes and Uzi. The way his lovely cover drives, the lazy shots off the pads, like he just leans on the ball. There's I feel like he's got time, you know, I feel like all great batsmen, something I've never had is time when I bat. <laughs> and they look like they slow the play down and he looked fantastic. Pulling off the back foot was absolutely beautiful. Um so great knock by uh Uzi. I think he was the only uh well I think he was born in Karachi, but his whole family's from Karachi. Um they call it the the place of the Kawaja. So um, you know, a significant moment for him. Um, I feel like another great story of a multicultural Australia. Um, there's been lots of them. You know, we look talk back at the Olympics one and um, look at the back the all the backstories of our Olympic gold medalists and our Olympic successes. Uh, we're very similar, and Aussie's uh, another great person. He's got a great perspective on the game of cricket. You know, he understands these you know runs. Wouldn't not always be there, but his enjoyment of the game will be, and he's just happened to be in a purple patch at the moment, and uh, we're re- reaping the rewards of that as fans of the game. So uh, that's great, and um, yeah, Smith got another fifty, just shy of the, again, just missing the hundred again, getting out uh, the last over of the of the day, second last over of the day, but um, hopefully they're in a good position here. Your thoughts on Uzi? Yeah, Uzi, mate. I mean, you gotta love it. You gotta you gotta love it for the bloke. Um, obviously with his struggles, and you know, I guess he. Wasn't sure if selection had come his way again for a while before, obviously, last summer. So, um, 
you couldn't be more happy for the bloke. And yeah, especially to do it in Pakistan, I think is is would be a massive thing for his family, but also, you know, kind of like a, a proud moment too for for a lot of Pakistani people as well. Um, I, I guess as well, Pakistanis who don't live in Pakistan anymore. It's like, um, I guess it's encouraging for them. Yeah. Especially, uh, I guess, uh, young Pakistani kids who play cricket in Australia. Yeah. Um, you know, he'd be doing a lot. This It'd mean a lot to a lot of people, like more than just Australia being successful at cricket. It's, it's you know, would be a big, um, sure. a big energetic boost to the hopes of a lot of kids yeah. and, their, and their sporting aspirations. But, but they can see someone who looks like them. Yeah, exactly. You know, and just someone who's made the same journey as them, like leaving your leaving your home country and going to somewhere familiar, unfamiliar that you're obviously a minority and someone who looks different to everyone else. Um, you know, just to show that that's not the end for, for what you want to do and you actually have a great chance to, to do that and go put your skills on show. But um yeah, so very happy for Uzi, but on the other on the other side devastated for Smithy. Yeah. I mean it's not a bad fit it's not a bad thing yeah. to be devastated for a bloke who keeps yeah, knocking fifties. Yeah. But I mean we all want to see Smithy succeed, and we've all seen what he can do. So when he just falls so close every time, it just yeah. it's shattering. I remember I was ta- I was with uh, who was I talking to last night? Pa- Paddy Figali. Uh, Paddy Figali. <laughs> a good conversation, and just out of the corner of my eye, I see the new ball come in. Just Smithy just chomping it to yeah. slips, and I just oh, I just stopped talking. Oh, okay. Head in hands for a little while. Oh mate feel for the bike so much especially the way he got out in the second innings of the last test was just so cheap yeah i feel like he'd be he'd be stinging right now but again he's scoring 60s and 70s and you know he's batting above his average still (laughs) just want to see that 60 average still going all right um yeah very well said Uh, so we'll leave it there hopefully um this deck uh has a bit more life in it than the last one um and what's the big moment playing in pakistan you know they've had their issues there um, and especially having international cricket, it's been such a long time. So it's great to see people in the crowd and enjoying it, and a, and a few Australian supporters there as well. But uh, moving on now, we'll just do a bit of a summer. Oh, sorry, yeah, we'll do a bit of a summer recap before we get into a bit of rugby league. Um, Ashes win, uh, part and parcel. I think there must be said there. Obviously, a bit of controversy relation to Langer, but well, there. But one thing I really wanted to highlight was Ash Barty. Um, Unbelievable. I think, you know, this got, again, you know, it was big, you know, for the first couple of days after she did it, but significant, significant win to win the Australian Open, your home slam, the whole of a country on your back. I don't know, I would probably never know what that feels like, but um, to be able to deal with that pressure mentally and then perform physically and, and technically like she did uh, over the course of the tournament and not losing a set, even, even when the heat came on and, you know, she was down 5 1 in that second set. I remember, you know, mum saying, oh, you know, she, uh, she probably should just give this setting, you know, rebuild for the third. So, hey, fight, fight. And that fight she did, she got the first break back and then she got the second break back and then all of a sudden uh, she won 7-5 and, and she rattled off six straight games to win. So uh, she's undoubtedly the number one tennis player in the world. I feel like the, the respect she gets from Europe and, and America doesn't match the level she's performing. In most tournaments she goes in now, she wins. Um Obviously, you know, lost at the U.S. Open in the third round, third rounder, but she didn't lose that. She'd probably win that, win that, and she won Cincinnati before that. Won five titles last year, so she is prolific and um, just an absolute ornament to the game. She is uh, a great role model for the Indigenous community. She's a proud Indigenous woman from from Ipswich up there in Queensland, um, and to have to have Yvonne Gould on Corley. Who was a world number one for a period of time and won thirteen Grand Slams uh, back in the seventies and eighties. Couple of Wimbledon's to have her present the trophy as another proud Indigenous woman. Um, it was just a, a sight to behold. Um, one of those moments that you will probably see played for years and years to come. Um, obviously, depending on how Ash goes from here, what's to say that she can't go on and win, you know, ten or twelve Grand Slams over the course of her career, given the way she's tracking. And she's now won one on all the surfaces. So she's won one on hard court, uh, grass and clay. And the only other active player to do that is Serena. And we know that she's probably the greatest player of all time or, you know, if not close to the greatest player of all time. So, um, you know, when you start to get to that sort of record, you're in an illustrious company. Um, and I'm looking forward to see what she can produce. And I just love the fact she picks her own tournaments that she wants to go in. You know, like she understands this, like tennis won't define her as a person. You know, she had a life before tennis and she'll have a life after tennis. And that perspective, I feel like, is beginning more and more important for success. 
um, you know, you get people, you know, who just, you know, live and breathe and they get burned out, you know, because they've got so much pressure on them and they can't deal with it. But her ability to say, yeah, I'm taking a break because I've had it, you know, when she was 17 or 18, you know, playing a bit of Big Bash, you know, yeah. just one of these all-around phenomenal sports people, you know, great hand-to-eye coordination, so she loves the golf, loves the cricket, um, loves, obviously loves the tennis, uh, goes without saying, but uh, fantastic. I'm not sure if you've got any other reflections on Ash there, but uh, that was my take on it. Oh, uh, yeah, mate, I know Ash is your passion, um, <laughs> as she is to me too, but I, I can just see it. I can just see your love for her oozing out yeah. right now, um, in the most PG way possible. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's good. To, you, she's got a good head on her shoulders. I know she's a, I know she loves her political football. Um, like I said, <laughs> I, I think listening. she's listening now. Ash, we'd love to have you on or, you know, just a little bit of interaction, please. Um, yeah, no, <laughs> you've nailed it, mate. <laughs> She's a bloody legend, yeah. and I, I was I was very rowdy for that that win, yeah. the Australian Open win, and I will be rowdy again. Fantastic. Well, I think it's a good place to leave it there. And now moving on to something a little close to the backyard here. That is a bit of rugby league. Yeah. Um, so obviously we've just got the season underway, uh, the twenty twenty two season. Uh, crept up on on us a bit. I feel like a bit, but uh, managed to kick off on Thursday night with Penrith versus. The Manly Warringah Seagulls, uh, and again for those uh, numpties that tip Manly, they just don't they don't they don't uh, remember the fact that Penrith don't lose they just don't lose games. Mm. Penrith just don't lose games. The only games they lose is when they're missing half their team, um, and you know like one or two here or there. But effectively, when they're playing at home, they just don't lose. They just it's like a, it's like a production system they've got out there. I think we've been over that before, but it's, they're great on the eye. They're great on the team football they play. You know. They get to their position. Everyone knows their roles. Uh, sensational stuff. And uh, yeah, Manly, I think I still go all right. But uh, yeah, I think um, yeah, Tommy Turbo is their team. And if he doesn't perform, if he gets shut down, uh, I think they find it hard to win games. Mm. So and then uh, Friday night we had uh, the well, first we had Canberra. Up, well, I'm not sure you call it upset, but Canberra got over the Cronulla Sharks. Um, Tip that. Yeah, Jackie Boy. Jackie Boy White looks like he's found a bit, a bit of. If he's if that game's anything to go by, maybe he's found his feet again. Jackie Dub. Yeah, yeah, Jackie Dub. Jackie Dub. Um, yeah, I mean, I yeah, he's a great player. I mean, I, the expectation everyone had on him last season was too high from mm. the beginning. I mean, I know he had here. He's had a great, you know, great year, year before last. Was it year before last? Yeah, Dali M. His Dali M year. Like, yeah, great. Unreal season, but I think the expectations coming on him last season were way too high and he was playing under a lot of pressure, but I feel like that's cooled off a bit and you saw the fruits of it on Friday night where, you know, he'd probably get to play a little bit more relaxed footy. Yeah. I don't think defences would be keen in on him as much this year um, as, I, I, you know, he had a quiet year last year. So I think he'll be one to watch this year. I don't think as prolific as he was in his Dalian season, but I think he'll do the Raiders a lot of good. Um, and especially as Fogarty comes back to, um, he'll get a little bit more responsibility with the kicking and stuff. So White will, you know, he'll get a chance, a couple more chances to run the ball, um, a couple more chances to kind of test his luck on on the edge. So, I think the Raiders were gonna are gonna have a good year. They're in my eight this this season. Mm-hmm. Um, they're in my eight over the Sharkies. I, I think the Sharkies. I've I've said it on other podcast pulls. Yeah. I've said it last season, season two. Sharky's going to be good, mate, but just yeah. not this year. I'm sorry. Right, okay. Well, you know, they'll be flirting with the eight. Yep. But Raiders and Sharks, you know, Raiders are probably always seem battling out for a spot. I reckon. Yeah, I think that I think they'll be fighting out that to round out that eight at the bottom of the eight. But I think Raiders Raiders will take it. Yeah. Well, we'll see. And then um, there's been a few upsets this round, but perhaps you know, kicking off a, a big upset. And I look at it in the context of things now. Looking back at it, it's. Um, Let's definitely see it happening, but the Brisbane Broncos getting over the South Sydney Rabbitohs, the 2021 Grand Finalists, 11 points to four. Kurt Catewell uh, kicking a field goal. And that's elite stuff, back rows kicking field goals. And in my personal opinion, you uh, served Braith and Asher's field goal in the 2010 <laughs> prelim final. I don't think, I honestly don't think this was much of an upset. Yeah, you, okay, you, right. Like you lose, if you're the Rabbits, you lose Reynolds. Yeah. You don't have Latrell. Yeah. You don't have Blake Taff. You lose your premiership coach, Wayne Bennett. Yeah. You, you know, you've lost so much. You still have a great team on paper, but it's your first game without all these pieces and then without the coach who's put you in a you know, premiership system. Yeah. And then the Broncos, I mean, Adam Reynolds didn't play, yeah. but you've got him that he'd been training with them all off-season. You've got Kurt Catewell. 
You got Katoni Staggs back and healthy. Selwyn Cobbo is looking good. My boom player. Yeah, so you've got you've got a lot of good. You got a lot of good players who have come in for Brisbane. You'd say this year, um, against that kind of dilapidated Rabbitoh side. I don't think that's a much of an upset. Dilapidated. It was a great. It was a great game of footy. Um, but I don't know. I just wouldn't call it an upset. I don't think Broncos yeah. are going to be a massive premiership threat this year. But I think. They have the capability to beat some of those teams like the Rabbits. Oh yeah, I think they'll, I think they'll prove it. Yeah, there's obviously a few question marks over the Rabbitohs without those pieces you were talking about. Um, but you know, I definitely, I just, like, I just remember watching it. And again, you take trials with a grain, a grain of salt. But mm. just watching them get towed up by the Cowboys, who, who many people have from the, in their bottom four or, or as one of their wooden spoon uh, contenders. Um, had me a few question marks. Obviously, Reynolds wasn't playing, but that was the same situation for this game. You had Billy Walters, another father-son duo there. Billy uh, Walters. Yeah, Billy Walters. Every time he touched the ball. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and um, Albert Kelly um, playing in the half. So um, he took an intercept and, and scored a great try. So um, that was another one. And then moving on to my favourite one, definitely yesterday, was Ooh, Newcastle yeah. getting over the Roosters. Don't you love to say uh, it? Well, I often say when Roosters lose, society wins. Um <laughs> It's because Nick Politis took a good $120 million worth of taxpayers' dollars uh, while his company increased the profits. But hey, who's counting? <laughs> who's counting? Um, but um, yeah, the, the Knights, I always feel like they'll be up for this game. They, they, they're round one specialists, if that's a thing. Yeah. Um, they haven't, I think they've won the last seven round one games. So always up for the start of the season. I always felt like going up against Connor Watson, who's one of Pong, Ponga's good mates, you know, up there, whatever, the podcast collective, the thing that got going up there in Newcastle. He was surprised when he left, so I feel like these games are always hostile when you're playing someone who's left um, the club to go to the team that you're playing. When we were Tedesco 2018, uh, Tigers beat the Roosters, and I've only been alive for about three or four wins against the Roosters, so I remember every single one like it was yesterday, um, <laughs> including, the one, including the trial. I'm counting that as well. Um, but, um, you know, it was good to see. And, and just uh, I thought they played with, obviously, a bit of heart defensively, uh, Roosters had a try denied initially uh, through the centre of the ruck, which was quite, was quite a nice try, but uh, I didn't make the rules, uh, the NRL does, so it was a, considered an obstruction. And then from there, um, you know, they were able to weather the storm from the uh, early hostility from the Roosters, you know, forward pressure, um, and then really played with, with some great potency through the middle of the field. Kurt Mann, I thought, even though he let that first defensive laps go through, he played pretty well. He rocked Maria Hargraves, which is always great oh, to see. Heck was that. Yeah, it was fantastic. Um, and then just play with like moving the ball side to side. You know, weren't afraid to go at the line and square the shoulder. And there were some really nice tries uh, that uh, the Newcastle scored, including you know tries that were forced off the back of errors. Um, Clint Tedesco completely stuffing one up at the back, which yeah. is it's always nice to see. Yeah, so that that was good. But yeah, Newcastle. Again, I know, I know you've had your skepticism about Newcastle in the past and their ability to string wins together. It's not that they can't win; it's their ability to string wins together and keep form without undulating up and down. We've actually got Newcastle next week, so I'm hoping they undulate a bit down <laughs> um, for us. And we usually go right against That'd Newcastle. Be a good fight, I reckon. Yeah, yeah, That'd yeah. Be a good fight. Well, one of it, about the three games we won last year was two against Newcastle. So uh, <laughs> uh, that, hopefully uh, we can replicate that. Um, so yeah, that was a good win. Then uh, Dragons got one over um, the Warriors. Um, and I believe that will lead us to your Nostradamus. Yes, ding, 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 ding. You're ringing the, the bell. Nostradamus! <laughs> that is my Nostradamus this season. The New Zealand Warriors will be the wooden spooners of the 2022 Telstra Premiership NRL season. Yes. If you will. Yeah. And the reasoning? Uh, the reasoning is... I think the traction, obviously, they played at the Central Coast last year. Yeah. Um, do we know the status on them moving back to New Zealand? I think they're, I think it's, I think it's good, they're all clear. They're all, they got I think the all clear. Oh, yeah, they to check that, but they, I think the board is, is really, oh, it's, oh yeah, I want to comment on that, but I'm sure, I'm sure they'll get to play there this year. Well, that's their death sentence, Tom. Mm. That's yeah. their absolute death sentence. I think going back to New Zealand could be the worst thing for them right now. Uh, coming over here in the pandemic, you're training, playing in the Central Coast, you know, you've, you've got, they got the chance to build a little bit more of a supportership over in Australia. Um, and obviously the whole of the NRL was getting around them and everyone kind of wanted them to succeed. I think everyone still wants to see them succeed, but I think going back to New Zealand in a rugby union market, um, I think will hurt them a lot because the absence of league probably wasn't missed over there. Um, so, you know, the excitement for it to come back I don't think is going to be huge for New Zealand rugby league fans. So I just think without, you know, without a massive supportership, 
and as a team that will have to travel three to four hours in on a plane to get to every game um, away from home, I think that'll take a big toll on those guys. Um, you know, don't yeah. wish it upon them. I just, I'm just trying to think realistically here um, yeah. about their chances when they go back to New Zealand. So that's my Nostradamus. This and just doing a quick check there on on their on their ability to go back to New Zealand. So they're playing at a Morton Daly Stadium, which is where Redcliffe will be playing next year. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least a part of their games. Um, up until round 15, so that's their home game. So yesterday was a home game for them. Uh, before round 16, they make the pilgrimage back to Mount Smart. I think obviously aligns with the New Zealand border um, restrictions, I presume. Uh, that's why it's there. Against no other, no other but the mighty West Tigers. There you go. Uh, so it looks like I'll be making my way to Auckland on the, <laughs> to that day. And uh, if, if, you're, uh, if your Nostradamus goes to plan, that should be two points. I think uh, it will. Coming our way. So... Uh, yeah, there you go. I don't. Yeah, I don't wish it on them. Yeah. I just, I seriously worry. It's the same thing for rugby union in Australia right now. It's yeah. hard. It, that, like, it's a bit of a dying market. It's a dying sport yeah. in Australia because the fan, the supporters, like fan base is is just pretty weak here at the moment. So, I think it's just going to be the exact same thing happening over there. And uh, I mean, a team without fans or a team without support in their own hometown, yeah. it's it's going to be hard. So, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing a little bit of a partnership. A sort of GWS Giants with the Monica Oval type type deal going on, you know. Like, right, okay. Yeah, you yeah. know, in in coming seasons, if if the Warriors play some of their home games back at the Central Coast, I think that'll be a good thing for them. Um, just until they, you know, they boost up their support at home. It's not all doom and gloom for Warriors fans. They are sponsored by Puma, so they have some pretty good kita, <laughs> and I wouldn't mind getting my hands on some of that kita. Oh yeah. Um. So, you know. Uh, Shout out to all the 25 Warriors fans who listen to the podcast. Uh, <laughs> great effort from you guys and uh, get around your club and get, get around your team. Because uh, when New Zealand's going well, the competition's going well. Again, if I had a dollar for every time someone said, like, saying that's that phrase, like, you know, I've heard, uh, if Sir George is going well, the competition's going well. <laughs> you know, same thing in Para, with Tigers, you hear it all the time, you know. Uh, the only team you don't hear it for is East, you know, logically. Standard. Um, but, um, yeah, then we uh, had the Tigers take on the... Uh, the or you know perennial grand finalist uh, Melbourne Storm, um, and for sixty minutes they put on one hell of a show, but just got a bit outclassed in the end. And I know you know they were missing Munster and Grant, uh, but they still a good world system. They had Brendan Smith. I don't know went down in the first four minutes, uh, but Jerome Humes won that game. Uh, it was just it was such a, it was such a spirited effort for the Tigers for the first sixty minutes. So you know defended their line. Um, you know, we're, we're completing in high percentage, but then a few areas crept in, a few uh, piggyback penalties down the field, and they just weren't able to defend that. The classic one was Jerome Hughes. Um, obviously, West were sliding pretty well, uh, and then he just decided that he was going to step back on the inside, and it was just a staggered defensive line. He beat the first player, then beat Stefano, then Laurie was also it was like, it was like 10 pins, um, just back <laughs> on the inside, back under the post, and... That was it. So, like, again, good signs by West, but again, it's, it's, uh, for as long as I've lived, it's been about delivering an 80-minute performance. It has to be. Again, uh, I'd have about $500 for every time someone said, West need to deliver an 80-minute performance. <laughs> um, so, um, so, same sort of thing, but some great signs there. I thought Hastings and Brooks combined pretty well for the majority of the game. Um, I thought Luch, Luciano Lalu was obviously great with ball in hand. What's uh, the status on him? Does he? I think I think he's okay. He's I, think, right. I think he's okay. It might be just a bit of a knee strain, but uh, the fury or whatever the guy who tackled him, you and Paddy Fagali going at it. But um, he, I think he's been cited for that. And uh, yeah, we want to get the cannonball tackle out of the game, especially knee injuries, ankle injuries. Yeah, um, they can be you know very debilitating. So. No one wants uh, to see it. Yeah, uh, that that's obviously not something to come out of the game. Uh, Belly ache wasn't happy afterwards, and that's for sure. Um, but um, yeah, hopefully um, some more. Of that I think with this year with the Tigers, what I'm looking for is effort and commitment, mm. uh, because you know you can be out class on a field like they probably were last night, but um, you can't. Repl- you know, there's no reason why you can't put in the effort and the commitment. You know, at the end of the day, it's thirteen v thirteen. Mm. Um, so. Yeah, some good signs, but um, you know, some also signs that you know there's still obviously a bit way to, a bit of a way to go. Uh, but moving forward to today, we have a uh, four o'clock game. You want to walk us through that one, Joe? I can already sense the crowd in an anticipation building out at Combank Stadium. Pools. I can't get there this afternoon, unfortunately, as I've my own, my own sporting commitments, sporting dreams yeah. to to uh, chase. But para, 
I think this is going to be a good chance to start off and, and show them why this is our year, boys. Yeah. And I'm speaking directly to you now. I know you're all in the <laughs> sheds getting ready, warming up, listening to political football live. This is our chance. This is our time, boys. No, but I, I do think it was to get a good win today. I think they're going to come out strong. Um, obviously, a couple of mixed performances in the trials. Good one over Penrith, but another the other trial was a bit average. But um, I think we got a good team. It's the, it's their last kind of hurrah together, um, and I know there's a lot of buzz building around that between the players, the playing group, and and the fan base. So. I've got faith in my boys this year. Hindy on uh, on Matty Johns the other <laughs> night said Eels for minor premiership. <laughs> Look, Hindy, Hindy's favourite Eel of all time, so I'm backing him. Yeah, yeah. I'm backing him. Eels minor premiers. Of course, you've got the um, 2001 premier, minor premiership title for Joey Johns decided to turn up in the grand final and make Don't it 24-0 at half let's, time. Let's not talk about that. Um, um, <laughs> but I, I, will, I will give you some hope. Was it Obviously, the last time Parramatta made uh, the grand final was 2009. And again, I'll, yeah, give full credit to you. You know, some people call it an asterisk, but I'm happy to give it to you. You know, because I know Melbourne cheated, um, unlike some of the other boys uh, you were speaking to last night. Yeah, it's a tough crowd. Um, but um, the last time that happened, um, Labor had control of Parliament Council, and I uh, guess what uh, the recent uh, council elections, they actually got control of par- the uh, Parliament Council again. So there you go. Uh, that's a bit of political football for Look, you. If that's a sign, I'll yeah. take it. Yeah, yeah, I'll take it. Man, I'm desperate. I feel like this is like if Parramatta do anything, this is where the last year of your premiership window. You got a few players so leaving, few players leaving at the end of this season. Isaiah Papaluti has seen the bright side. He's making his way down the uh, M4 to Concord. Um, so the graveyard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. See how Ryan Madison's going, mate. Uh, <laughs> so uh, you know, I think yeah, I'm hoping for you go well. I think you're definitely a top eight team, um, and hopefully pushing that top four for, for your sake. And then rounding off the game season or rounding off this week, uh, round one with Cowboys Bulldogs. Um, there's a reason it's a Sunday six pm game. Snooze fest. <laughs> <laughs> Get a rumble up, yeah, to snooze fest. <laughs> um, yeah, so this one, uh, you know, I feel like there could be a toss of a coin. Again, Bulldogs, and again, we take trials with a grain of salt, but, you know, it looks, you know, very scratchy in the trials. Um, you know, Cowboys, uh, I love the the hammer. I, I just love the hammer. Just yeah. as an individual talent, I would love to see him in a Tigers jersey one day. Um, tab you off for though. Oh, my goodness, baby. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think the only thing that splits this game for me is just home ground advantage. Okay. Um, paying, like, I think these two teams are pretty similar ability and, and playing level right now, but I think playing up in North Queensland will be a big boost to the yeah. Cowboys. I think that would be one of the hardest uh, away grounds to play at, especially for a Sydney team. Um, you're going up into obviously a much hotter climate um, against a, a very one-sided crowd. Yeah. You know, there's not many one-sided crowds in the NRL. Yeah. Like w- at a home ground, yeah. I'd say probably Parramatta could be one of them. The Raiders could be one of them. North Queensland would be one of them, and I'd say they're the probably they're probably the yeah. biggest ones. Um, you know, all those other kind of big ones. Like you get a lot of fans who just like footy and yeah. no, not supporting the. A team who's playing in that game, or vice versa, but I think Queen North Queensland's one of those crowds. Brisbane, another one. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's the big deciding factor in today. I think Cowboys get a, I don't know, I wouldn't say a big win. I'd just say a moderate win. Um, yeah, I think you're looking at one to twelve. Okay, yeah, yeah. one to twelve. Fantastic. Well, uh, that's that wraps up there. Uh, and uh, just uh, before we wrap up for the this with the uh, episode this week, uh, we just thought we'd rattle through and give a bit of bold predictions. Grand final. Who, who, who's our te- who are our teams? Grand final. I've got uh, I've got Parramatta versus the Penrith Panthers. Okay, very interesting. Um, for me, um, I reckon it'll be Panthers versus someone. I'm still yet to determine that. Um, I don't think it'll be Roosters. Um, it could be Parramatta. Uh, but Parramatta and Penrith have a habit of meeting somewhere before the grand final, because mm. where they finish on the table. But um. Yeah, again, I think Penrith, it's going to be very hard for them um, not to win again. I just think they've built a bit of a dynasty out there and it just, they've got that winning recipe. Even the Storm, like I, I just don't sh- not sure if they can, you know, I'm sure they'll go all right, but I'm not sure they match it. Rabbitohs leave a lot to be desired. And again, we'll see if someone can sneak from, you know, a bit of a surprise back of you. Penrith, for me, seemed to be a bit... Like heads- Manly last year, a little bit of a wild card. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Heads and, head, head above the rest of them. Um, and for Dallium... Uh, Jacko Hastings, no doubt about it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, Dally M, yeah, jeez, that's a big one. 
I wouldn't mind seeing a big bopper get it this year. Yeah, I wouldn't see, mind seeing after the performance Payne Haas had the other night, yeah. if he can stay healthy and put my chips in Payne Haas. Okay. I'd love to see a big fella, a leader from the front, get the dally end, you know, yeah. just to show that it's not all about, you know, prancing around, scoring tries and breaking lines. It's about yeah. doing the hard yards. Bit of, a bit of hard yakka. Playing a good, gritty, rugby league yeah. football. Yeah, he wouldn't be using a... You know, when would the last time a front row won dally end? Is Tabalolo won it? Yeah, he we call him a dally end. I mean, a prop. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. Mid, mid, middle bit of a forward. hybrid. Bit yeah, of a yeah. hybrid. Um, you'd have to go back into the uh, the record books, the the annals. But I want to see it. Payne, okay. I know you're listening. I want to see it. Yeah. And uh, just a reminder out there, everyone that's at the podcast, stop banging a pain in the house to whoever's around you at the most point in time. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a bit of a cheap dad joke. But uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, thanks very much uh, for joining us on again season three, episode one of Political Football. No doubt we're in for our biggest season yet, uh, 2022, big year ahead. Fireworks. Um, so, yeah, thanks for listening. And if you got this far, keep dribbling on. <laughs>